Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Good morning, everyone. Um, Morning, Johnny. The reading is split into two chunks this morning. So the first section is from Acts 1, verse 1 to 9, and the second is from Acts 2, 29 to 36. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hit them, hid them from their sight. Then in 29, Acts 2, 29 to 36. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Well then, Sam, good to have you in the service again, even if you did have to engineer your own way in by asking to read. (laughs) That's not true, I'm sure. Uh, But it's uh, good to be here today. Well done, firstly, well done for making it to the the new service time, 11 o'clock. I wonder if some of you were here ever so early, Uh, still expecting a 10.30 kickoff, but if you were... Well done, it's good to be here, and also welcome to everyone in the room, from me, welcome if you're watching on the live stream, and uh, welcome, as Sam has already said, to any students joining us, if you're on a church search, you're so welcome here today, we're glad to have you. Uh, We're going to begin a new series, I'll come to that in a minute, but before I look forward to the new series, I'd just love you to cast your minds back, if you can possibly bear to do it, to the dark days of COVID. Now, you may remember, and if not, just imagine yourself. You're in your home. 
It's about five to five, and you're preparing yourself for that daily ritual, the latest installment of the soap opera. Your favorite soap opera, my favorite soap opera? Neighbors? No. Home and away? EastEnders? No, not at that time. I'm talking about the government's latest COVID updates. Now, uh, (laughs) if you can remember the star characters of that soap, Boris? Please. Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance? No, not even Holly Valance, actually. I'm talking about R. Anybody remember R? You may not remember R. R is a shorthand for a reproduction number. R was the average number of secondary infections produced by each infected person. So a very infectious virus would have a very high R number. A, a, low, a virus of low infection would have a very low R number. And the key thing, if you remember, is that we manage R. We need to get R down. We need R to be below 1.0. Because as soon as R is below 1.0, the viral numbers start to shrink. And the future in which we're allowed to leave our homes would be before us. Likewise, if R is above 1.0, even if only a very, very small amount, I hope that this is, this is all revision. You've already lived through this. I'm just reminding you. Even if it's just a little bit over one, viral numbers begin to proliferate, viruses passed on, and we will be homeward bound forever. That's the theory. That's the theory behind R. And again, that is a fairly difficult thing to be reminded of. But nonetheless, we've lived through it. Now, what possible relevance would R have to us this morning in Nottingham at this point, in a church? Well, a man called Dr. John Haywood did a little bit of research. He's a mathematician at the University of Wales. And his research suggested that the church has an R problem. Here's what he said. Quote, we heard about R numbers during the COVID outbreak. For churches, I call R the reproductive potential. If this number is less than one, enthusiasts, that's you guys, you look it, you look enthusiastic, enthusiasts fail to reproduce themselves. Conversions are too weak and the church dies out. If the reproduction potential is greater than one, conversions are strong enough to counter losses And the church may grow. Now, Dr. John Haywood analyzed statistics, attendance statistics, data from between 2000 and 2020. It's a fairly large sample size of data. And he found, looking at various different denominations, that the Church of England and the Roman Catholic churches across the UK had R numbers of about 0.9. Just above that, actually. Their congregations, he then suggested, could vanish by 2062. The Methodist Church, well, I'm not going to go into the data. It's, it's more depressing. The Church of Wales, still more depressing. But good news, the Elim Pentecostal Church and the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches both had R numbers of between 1 and 1.1. They were growing. The Pentecostals. Keeping us honest. Now, Dr. Hayward concluded that over the next few decades, 
We may see the death of the historic denominations, that they perhaps have run their course. He said, one thing is clear. If things carry on as they are, the future of Christianity in the West, in the UK certainly, does not lie in the hands of the older denominations. Now, this may seem a little depressing. Today's message, at least in my heart, is a message of profound hope. I feel so hopeful about the future of the church. I feel so hopeful. I don't necessarily feel profoundly hopeful about the church of England all the time. I, I'm committed for this time to the church of England, but I'm committed fundamentally to the church in England. That is my concern, and that should be our concern, not to necessarily to salvage historic denominations, though I do hope the church of England has a good future. But I'm committed to the church in England, and I believe that the future of the church in England is profoundly hopeful because Jesus has promised he will build his church. But what we mustn't do is we think about the future of our denomination and the future of the church is think that this has been foisted upon us. This has come upon us as some kind of surprise, as some kind of shock. No, this has been foretold. There's a man who was a, a bishop and a missionary about 30 years ago. Well, actually, he returned to the UK after about 30 years. Here he is. His name's Bishop Leslie Newbegin. He was a theologian and a bishop. And he'd been in India for 30 years. He'd established churches and missional outposts in India. And he returned to the UK after 30 years away. And what he noticed was that in the time he was away, there had been a profound shift in the spiritual atmosphere. More than that, the structure of the UK. We had moved, he said, from a phase known as Christendom, where the church was in the preeminence, where Christian belief was dominant, where it was socially acceptable or even socially rewarded to go to church on a Sunday. To a point in life where other things had replaced Christian faith in the structure of our shared conversation and in our shared life. That, he said, was not necessarily the problem. The problem, he said, and the crisis for the church is that Christians were still relating to the culture and their faith as if Christianity was still in the dominant position. And they were expecting to reach the culture from that place of dominance. Harping on, moralizing to the culture about how people should live. Expecting that by baptizing people's infants, they would be able to evangelize the whole nation. And other things like that. He said, no, what needs to happen urgently for the survival of Christianity in this nation, he said, was for the church to engage in what he described as a missionary encounter. See, in a Christendom environment, the church can sit back and wait for the folks to flock in. And we'll preach to them until they're converted. But in a post-Christian, otherwise known as a secular age, we no longer have the ability of doing that. We have to find a different way to be the church. We have to engage in a missionary encounter. Newbegin said, if the church doesn't do that, what we'll see is decline and death. And indeed, since he prophesied these words, that is what we've seen. It seems clear to me that the church in the West, largely speaking, the Elam guys are clearly doing it, but many denominations of the church in the West have forgotten how to live missionary lives. 
And I actually think many pastors have failed to engage in the difficult work of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You know, it isn't enough to come and hear me speak. Some of you are like, it's not even really very good coming to hear you speak. You may well be right. But unless we as the church understand our true mission, our true role in the world, there isn't going to be much more of this going on. We cannot any longer rest upon a prevailing Christian culture to do the work for us. There is no longer a prevailing Christian culture. But there is profound hope in the story and the history of the early church. And so we're going into a series based in Acts, and I'm so excited about it. We're calling it the Jesus Revolution. Because what we want to do as we look at the early church is to understand that the tools required for seeing a shift, a rise in our are in our hands. They're in your hands, they're in my hands, and so we're going to spend 10 weeks as we prepare for Christmas uh, in preparation, looking at the Jesus Revolution. So turn to the book of Acts, if you would, and what we see in chapter 1, verse 1, is this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Key piece of data, if we're going to see R, rising up, he was alive. That's why we can be hopeful, isn't it, about the future of the church? Because there is a Jesus, he is not dead, he's not in the tomb, they never found his bones, it would have been easy to falsify, it would have been easy, sorry, to... uh, show that this was falsified just by presenting the bones of Jesus. Nobody ever did it. It wasn't possible. The man was raised, and on the basis of that, the church has a story to tell. There is hope. What we find as we look at the story of Acts is that something has happened. Something has taken place. There are events right at the heart of the Christian story that should fill the church, not just with hope, but can I say, this morning, maybe even a little bit of swagger. It's time to get our swagger back. A man was dead, a man was crucified for our sins, and two days later, three days, on the third day, which I always think is not three days later. On the third day, two days later, he was raised to life, just, just to be accurate. It is important. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) A man was raised from the tomb. And in his resurrection from the tomb, hope was birthed. A new story began to be told. And it was a story that was continuous in some ways with the story that God's people had been telling through history, but also profoundly new. It came to these people like an interruption, a rupture in the fabric of their world. It was not evolution, it was revolution. And what those disciples had to do, those in, in the first instant, those Jewish disciples, was to integrate what they saw happening with this man in his life, this Jesus, Post-resurrection, they had to integrate that into their lives. And what they found is that it completely exploded everything. It turned everything upside down. It was a revolution. 
for them. And quite quickly, as you know, you know this story. You've read the book. And if you haven't read the book, it's a good book. Start reading with me through Acts. What you'll find is that quite quickly, non-Jewish people started coming to faith. Not just one or two, but in their droves. And God was so generous, he started pouring out the Holy Spirit on them. And the Jewish folk were like, we've got a problem. God's blessing people who, who, who aren't following the Jewish law. Oh, God's being a bit generous. What are we going to do? And some of them said, well, we've got we've to get them. We've got to teach them the law. And, and then in the end, they made this decision. No, they don't have to follow the law. But they have to come under the lordship of Jesus. It was this amazing explosion, this revolution. God showed himself to those people to be different than they'd ever known. But substantially less different, distant than they'd ever imagined. God broke in. And the church had to catch up with this story. That's what happens in the Bible. And that's not exactly where we are today, is it? We're in a different moment. We're not in the first century. Let's not pretend that we are. People are, in some ways at least, substantially less religious perhaps than they used to be. Where are we then? What is the thing that has just happened in our day? Well, what's happened is the the rise of secularism. And secularism is basically the The attempt to establish the kingdom without the king. It's the attempt to kind of empty out the vestiges of Christianity, but still enjoy the fruits. Still enjoy the fruits of peace. Still enjoy the fruits of joy. Still enjoy all that stuff, but without the sort of difficulties, the burdens of doing what God says. In fact, we've dispensed in the secular world, with, even with the idea, largely speaking with the idea of God. Everyone you know decided that God didn't exist. But they set about making life meaningful in his absence. You know, John 10, 10, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life in all its abundance. And the secular world says, we want life. We want life. And we want it in all of its abundance. But we don't think that the source of that life could be or is God. And that gives us in the church a problem because lots of the questions that the gospel is set to answering, the secular world isn't even asking. You know, there's a, a guy who wrote a book called Atonement for a Sinless Society. You know, that, the sinless society is the secular society. The secular society no longer believes that atonement is required because we don't have a living concept in our world of sin. We might talk about my issues my brokenness. What I need, therefore, is a therapist. Somebody to talk my problems out with. And when I've talked them out enough, I'll be good. But the story the Bible is telling is a different story. There is, as Leonard Cohen says, a crack in everything. Or as, I always quote this one, don't I? I should really move on. Bob Dylan said, there ain't no use driving. No, well, you can drive. But no use joking, everything is broke. That's the story, the Christians, that's the, that's the Christian story, that there is a profound brokenness that only Jesus can answer. I came across this this week, this story, and I think we have a picture here of the sycamore gap tree. Have you seen this tree? 
I think this is actually a powerful vision of, in previous generations, that maybe this tree stands for Christianity in our nation. Just standing in the gap like that, resembling something ancient and good. You know, that tree was about 300 years old when in the last week or so it was felled. Here is the picture of its destruction. You know, a senseless act of barbarism. A, literally a desecration, a desecration, a deholifying, to make up a word. That is the secular instinct. If that tree symbolizes something of the Christian heritage of this nation for the sake of this sermon, I'm not saying that's what, actually what that, that tree symbolizes, but let's just say that it does. The secular world wants to cut the tree down at its roots. And to begin to begin to build a different world in which there are no trees, there is no connection with that past. It is my suggestion, it is my conviction, that that won't work. And because that won't work, there is such hope for the gospel. We live in a world where we've dispensed with the notion of God, and yet we are experiencing more anxiety than ever before. We are seeing a significant diminishment of resilience, a significant absence of hope. Those longings that were within us for God, that God placed there, cannot be satisfied by more entertainment, more sexual fulfillment, even a Ryder Cup victory, which we do hope for, for those of you who care. And so for the church, as we begin to consider what a missionary encounter with our culture will look like and could look like, I want to arm you with hope. This world is as much in need of the good news of Jesus Christ as ever before. And as we face into the challenge of communicating the gospel to this world, we have good news to share. That the God who interrupted the world of those first Christians is here right now ready to interrupt your life and my life and the life of your friends who think they have no need for God. God is able to bring about a rupture in the fabric of their lives too. How might it happen? Well, look at this. Simply, let me just say this. These disciples are willing to reorient everything around the risen Jesus. Absolutely everything. And as they do that, they become known as those Acts 17, 6, those who have been turning the world upside down have come here too. See, when the church catch hold of a vision for Christian life, which is completely reorienting everything around Jesus, we become an unstoppable force. And the Holy Spirit is available to us today, and it is time to join, not the evolution, not just your life plus a bit of Jesus, but the complete reordering of every human life around the resurrected Jesus so that God might turn the world upside down through us. And if you think this is fighting talk, it is. But the weapons of our warfare are not weapons of violence. They are weapons of power, of self-discipline and love. They are weapons of turning the other cheek. They are weapons of healing. They are weapons of hope, witness, worship, and all those other good things that they did in the book.
I watched a video as I come into land from John Wimber just this last week, and he just said this simple phrase. He came to Jesus from a, a he describes it as a pagan background. He was a, a pastor, for those that have never heard that name, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He died in the later 90s. And he was somebody who experienced the Holy Spirit and, and, and taught others and led others into profound and deep conversion. And as he was sharing his testimony, his coming to faith, he said these words. He said, I came to the conclusion, or I've come to the conclusion, that if Jesus is worth following, he is worth going all the way with. I stand before you this morning as somebody who believes that. I think if Jesus is worth following, he's worth giving everything to. Giving everything to Jesus in a secular world will be uncomfortable. It will bring you and me into tension with the world around us. It will be dissonant. You might even be labeled a bigot. Because Christian labels have been taken up and filled with secular content. But this kind of a revolution is what the world needs. A Jesus revolution, living out compelling lives to a different script. Worshipping a different God. Waiting on that God to show you where and how to move. Witnessing to the impact that God has had on your life. Publicly and openly, without defense. Welcoming people into your home and into his presence. Becoming a people of prayer, of power, of holiness, of presence, giving yourself away generously, even in a cost of living crisis. This is what we're going to explore over the coming weeks, because this is what the Jesus movement does in Acts, and it is what we are committed to learning how to do. So, let's land as we begin. Ah, reproduction number. Well, what about if R is the renewal number? What if R stands for renewal, the renewal of the church? And through the church, the renewal of the culture, I, I've committed myself to giving my life for the renewal of the church. I don't know whether that can happen for the Church of England. I don't know. But I'm committed to seeing the church in England renewed. And if it doesn't happen in my time, I'm going to leave as many spirit-filled leaders behind me as I can possibly bear to do. I want to see renewal of the church for the sake of the nation and the nations. I love what God has been doing in this church. Some of you have even come to us and said, this is the best church we've ever been to. Praise God. But it's not enough. We didn't come here to start a slightly better church than some other churches. We want to see a revolution in the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We want to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We want to see the church back in the hands of its people. We want to see the Spirit of God equipping the saints for mission and ministry. We want to see people healed on the streets. We want to see your friends and my friends, the most stubbornly resistant to the gospel, coming to faith, coming to the altar, giving their lives to Jesus. Because the best evangelists this city has ever known are not yet Christians. The best church leaders may still be in the prisons. What could a revolution look like, like this look like in our day? 
There are churches in this nation with an R of over one. And I think that if we as a community resolve to making ourselves part of this revolution as a response to the activity of God, we might see a significant shift in the atmosphere of this place and even of this city. So I ask you this in closing. Dare you join the revolution? Dare you? I dare you. I dare you to join the revolution. And that means, to use an old Bible word, consecration. Making room. Making space in your life for God to move. So I'm going to pray. And you might want to join me in this prayer. And then we're going to take communion as our response.